is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Jouar. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Jouar, and today is Wednesday, June 13th, 2018, and my guest is no other than Rene Ritchie of iMore and Vector. Hi, Rene. How are you? Hi, Miriam. I'm doing really well. Thank you. So, I want you to talk to us and tell us, educate us on uh, the Worldwide Developer Conference, which is a big Apple event that took place last week here in San Francisco while I was in Taipei and Taiwan covering Computex. And then I would love to discuss some, some nagging issues I have with the Apple universe. And before we start, as a preload, for those of you who are listening who don't know me that well yet... I'm a huge long-time Apple and Mac fan. Mac is the key word here. I'm not a huge iOS person. I do appreciate the iPhone is one of the best phones out there. I have an iPhone 10. I think it's phenomenal hardware and software. Um, but you know, I'm primarily an Android user. And so it might come to you as a surprise that I am a long-time Mac user. And for me, what brought me to the Mac universe is that I am very a cross-platformy person, right? I don't know about you, Renee, yeah. but I do use everything. And so I was a Windows user at the time and a Linux user, and I really met, and Windows sucked and Linux didn't work well on laptops back then in the talking early 2000s, and Apple did Mac OS X. And yeah. I didn't think I could afford their hardware, and then one day I could. And then that was around the time OS X was maturing, and oh my God, it changed my life. I, I switched. Yeah. I was a switcher uh, way before the ads, and <laughs> I've never looked back. And as a developer at the time, video games, being able to write code that and having native Linux made a huge difference in this. Yeah, it was a POSIX machine under the hood. Exactly. It was slick hardware and, you know, oh yeah, awesome. And so here we are almost 15 years, more than 15 years later. And so what happened with Apple at WWDC 2018 to start? So I'll give you like the, the sort of the highlights. It, it, for me, it was one the of cliff the... cliff notes? The cliff notes, the Coles <laughs> notes. It depends, I guess, which country you're in. But no, absolutely. It was one of those conferences that it, it, it was like the iOS 4.1 that Scott Forrestal gave many years ago where he just like, it was one item after another dropping down. And it was very much like that. And I made a, a quick list. So better third-party Siri organi- uh, integration, CarPlay with Google Maps and Waze, group notifications, app limits for kids, group FaceTime, activity challenges, WebKit views on watch, podcast app and background audio on watch, Dolby Atmos for Apple TV, dark mode on the Mac, screen recording integrated with screenshots, news, stocks, voice memos, home for Mac, Mac App Store redesign. And, and like as he's saying these things, I'm going, finally. Finally, finally, <laughs> finally, and just scratching things off. So it wasn't as a cohesive, a focused, they didn't have one big theme for this year. It was really just filling in all of these gaps, some of which have been around for, I don't know, half a decade. Yeah, and they didn't announce any hardware, which sometimes happens at WWDC. So yeah. I was surprised and a little disappointed with that, to be honest. <laughs> I kind of like hardware. It happens. I mean, so they, most of the time, I think there's no hardware, but sometimes there is hardware and that sort of sets the expectation. And really, uh, Apple's the kind of company when as soon as something is ready, it ships. 
So last year, you know, a, a couple of years ago, Apple TV was supposed to be at WWDC and it just wasn't ready. So we got it in the fall. And then the next year, the MacBook Pros were supposed to be at WWDC and they just weren't ready. So we got them in the fall. And then last year, the iPod, the iPad Pros weren't ready in March. So we got those at WWDC. And then we got all the KB Lake iMacs and MacBook Pros and MacBooks. And this year, I mean, we can get into what's happening with Intel, but it, them going to 10 nanometer has not been pretty. And uh, Apple wants to ship Coffee Lake Macs, but they're just not ready. Uh, and it sounds like the iPad Pros aren't ready yet either. So we'll get those in the fall. So actually, let's let's take a tangent because this podcast is all about tangents. So let's, this is going to be our first tangent. Tangent number one. Let's talk about this because I wanted to touch on this. This is really important. You brought up Intel and you yes. brought up um, iPads. And Apple makes, if not the best, some of the best ARM-based chips on the planet for mobile devices. Yes. There is no doubt that the level of expertise exceeds everyone's at this point. So the the logical thing, I've been jonesing about this for a 12-inch MacBook, like a port- super ultra-portable laptop, is macOS on ARM. Yes. You know, like, why hasn't this happened yet? So they've had ARM-based MacBooks in the lab for years, just like they had Intel-based uh, Macs in the lab for years before they announced the switch. And I think for a long time, they sort of held them like the sort of Damocles above, above Intel's head saying, you guys better ship because if not, we've got this whole other platform ready to go. And we've seen, for example, some people have talked about iOS clamshells that they've had running on ARM. And uh, the paper got published, actually, the the um, the intern who did the, the kernel port for macOS to uh, ARM published his paper. I don't know if Apple wanted that or not, but he published his paper a few years ago. So they probably are testing both of those things. The switch would have a lot of impact. On the low end, like on the 12-inch MacBook, it'd be pretty seamless. But on the higher end, on things like iMacs and and certainly Mac Pros, I don't think you're competitive with Xeon yet. So it might be a staggered strategy. But either way, you'd have to look at legacy apps like Photoshop and Office and how long it would take to get those to rewrite. And do you do an emulation layer? And how do you, and we're going to talk about this soon, but how do you incorporate the touch layer? And it has so many questions that I think Apple was content to stay with Intel for as long as they could so they could make the ARM transition as seamless as they can when they finally have to do it. I, I think that there's no doubt that I don't see them switching to ARM for the phone for the full lineup right away. Yeah, I'm looking at a hybrid world of Intel-based Macs and ARM-based Macs that are seamless, and they're switch. You know, if you switch between them with an emulation layer for x86, which is basically what. Uh, Microsoft and Qualcomm have been doing in a very rocky way with Snapdragon 835 last year. And I'm not saying rocky uh, that it doesn't work. It does. It's a little compromised, but compromised leaning towards portability, which I think is good. But I think that if Apple did it, it wouldn't be compromised and it would uh, be possible that low-end machines could be ARM-based with an emulator, being able to run, uh, you know, legacy apps on macOS, and I'm not even talking about adding a touchscreen yet at this point. I'm just talking, think of your MacBook 12-inch today. Same weight, size, form factor. Double the battery life, add LTE, ARM-based. It just works. Why it can, can't that can happen? handle encode, decode on H.265. Oh, my God. Way better than so Core much, Don't do. we, right? I mean, so I, that's... I had the, go on. I had the review unit for the MacBook 12-inch last year's and the iPad 12.9-inch last year. And I could handle three streams of 4K video on the iPad, and it would choke 
the Core M processor on the MacBook so hard. I mean, that Core M is a disaster. I, I live with yeah. it. When I travel, that's my main machine. But man, it's brutal. And you know, the other thing that is brutal is that I have played with so many Windows laptops lately that are about the same size format and form factor that uh, perform way better. And they might not be fanless. I don't know. All I'm saying is why can't Apple deliver... I'm not expecting MacBook Pro levels of performance here, but somewhere in between, you know? And so, again, that goes to, like, why don't they switch to ARM? And and yeah. so I'm wondering why this is dragging on. I be, you, you touched on the high end. They, don't, they, they probably want to switch everything at once, right? That's basically Apple, right? Or there's this weird thing. Like, I, like there's this new Intel chipset that uses AMD graphics, which is, you know, sort of like a hybrid I never thought I'd see. And then you look at the MacBook Pro, which has a T1 chip, essentially an embedded iOS and ARM right. architecture to handle security for things like Touch ID and Apple Pay. And the new iMac Pro, which has a T2 chip, which again is essentially embedded ARM and iOS to handle all the controllers and secure boot chain. And you wonder if like the next generation of Macs might be a hybrid of ARM T chips with Intel CPUs for some of the legacy stuff with AMD for the graphics. And that would be a bunch of architectures hidden under a, a, a shell. Now, yeah, I think all this is, is totally valid. I, my, but again, my question to you as an Apple expert is why yes. isn't it happened yet? I know that Apple is focused, you know, first of all, it's a huge company with huge resources. That's the way I see yes. it. Nowadays, they certainly aren't uh, limited in their resources and so, so what is the what is holding them back? You think? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's so much as holding them back as as timelines because they're always juggling a bunch of different computers at once, and they moved with a T one chip. The next year, we did the T two chip, and I think they just they weren't ready to make that transition yet. They were looking at Intel's roadmap, and Intel roadmap looked like it was pretty good, and then they hit ten nanometer, and it all. Oh fell my apart God. and you start waking up every morning and it's supposed to be it's supposed to be KB Lake and then Cannon Lake and then all of a sudden it's KB Lake and then Coffee Lake and then Cannon Lake and now there's like Ice Lake and Whiskey Lake and it's optimized, optimized, optimized um, and the list of Macs that have been delayed by this I think it, it was beyond their expectation so I think they probably had a timeline where they were going to get past Cannon Lake and start addressing it and now everything is in flux and they're probably going to have to accelerate uh, at least considerably to get that done. So you think this is like a high priority for them at this point, correct? I think it's become it. I think when you look at Intel today, it has to be a high priority because you just—it's almost like PowerPC back in the day. You just can't rely on them for yeah, your roadmap they, they anymore. Yeah, they reach a plateau at this point, and yeah. and and it's also as you said, like you, the future, right? They need, they can't depend on others, and I totally love that about Apple. I, I think it's amazing how much they've kind of done stuff in-house over the years. And as we all know, it, it, it helps the experience significantly. So, so now that we're done this tangent, <laughs> let's regroup back to WWDC yes. and maybe continue your line of, of thought along uh, this. And I want to eventually touch on uh, iOS apps on macOS and, yeah. and that whole can of worms of touchscreens and touch bars and you saw that Asus laptop with that ridiculous uh, touchpad that has a screen in it, which I'll tell you why I think it's ridiculous when we get to it, but I don't think it's per se technically ridiculous. I think it's implementation experience-wise ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I kind of want to move to that, but you, talked, you touched on a few things that I thought were pretty, uh, pretty critical. To me, a lot of what you enumerated Sounds like what we've heard from Google a month ago, or was it a longer than that at Google I.O.? And yeah. Dieter made that analogy in his video on The Verge. I will put a link in the show notes. Um, that video struck a chord with me at many levels, but I thought that 
that he, you know, he was right on some, there's some analogies, like the quiet mode or where it's called. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what, you know, if you think it's the other way around, that kind of Google preempted what Apple had been working on already and was clearly coming because we non-Apple people don't really follow that. Or if it's just, yes, there kind of seemed to be a mirror here. I mean, all like we know, like the people who watch this might go, oh, you know, this guy copied that from that guy. And sometimes that's the case. And often that benefits the user because con- consistency is a user benefit. But a lot of these projects are years in the making and there's just no, and they make sense because that's where the industry is going. And Google and Apple, it, it's, it's weird. So just to back up a bit, all these companies have problems. So Microsoft, they were not successful at mobile. So they were forced to bring Windows forward into the mobile era. And that included spending all of that time in the, basically in the desert of Windows 8 to get through it and get to Windows 10. Google had no legacy computing system, so they could go all in on modern computing. But their Chrome platform didn't have the same sort of app um, following that their Android platform did. So they were still forced to sort of make a bridge between Android, which was super popular, and Chrome, which was sort of future thinking. And Apple had the benefit and the curse of having a really not uh, huge market share, but huge profit share, very successful legacy computing platform, and a very popular, immensely popular modern mobile um, computing platform. And having to service both of those things, they couldn't sort of abandon their mobile efforts the way Microsoft did or not worry about them the way Google had to. They have to bring both these things forward. So it's almost like a company divided against itself. And I think for the same reasons Google had to make some of their announcements with Android apps and with um, slices uh, and with the way they're handling notifications is that both of these companies have to address similar problems now. Yeah, no, that's that makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, you know, AI is a huge, is going to be a huge part of any computing platform today. And yeah. getting Siri right is a pretty critical thing right now for Apple, right? Considering the competition is, I think, in many ways, quite a bit ahead. So, yeah. So what do you no, think? I agree with that. What do you think of of what they're bringing with Siri there? Like, is this? Do you think this is going to flip it over finally to a point where people can rely on it and feel like, hey, Siri's not maybe on parity now with Google Assistant, but I don't mind using it. It's part of my phone. I'm just going to use it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what they they did they did something smart given what they had. You know, and Apple is guilty of letting Siri just lie there dormant for years. They had such an advantage in terms of time. And I, I don't think they saw what Siri could become the way that Amazon saw what, um, what, it, what I don't know if I can say the word out loud, Alexis. I hope I didn't order anybody a dollhouse when I said that. <laughs> but Alexa could become or what Google Home could become. So they sort of neglected it for years. And now they're paying for that. I think HomePod was the biggest example because there was no screen interface to fall back on. You absolutely had to nail it. And they had sort of a come to Jesus moment and realized all the work they had to do. And I think what they did was smart. So if people didn't see it, they announced a new system called Shortcuts, which is really two systems in one. The first one is basically it'll take any action that you have on the computer and anything, any workflow, which is an app that Apple bought. It's basically Automator for iOS and let you create a quick voice shortcut for that. So you can make complex actions. Like when I leave, when I leave my house, make sure you message my spouse with the ETA for how long it's going to take. You set my thermostat up um, and you order my Phil's coffee for along the way. And then you queue up my NPR podcast and you do all that with, you you just say going home and it just does all of that for you. And that's like super nerd Nirvana because people have been dying to do like automator stuff on mobile. But okay. I agree with you on all of that, but, do people actually do that? Like, to me, here's the thing, right? I'll tell you, Renee. I, you know me, I'm a nerd. I would kind of want to use these kind of features, except they never work. 
Like even with Google and and Alexa, oh man, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, even you know, even with them, it's like half those times these rules work, but because there's always some SDK, some layer somewhere that breaks down in the cloud, right? It's like Phil's coffee systems are down, so you're not going to get your coffee. Yeah. Uh, or or you know, um, it misheard you and it's sending the text to you know uh, somebody's named almost the same. Like, no, I think all of that is fair, and I think that's why the other part of what they announced is, is to me, the better part, the more important part, and that is, like, for years, we've had people deal with these pull interfaces where you basically had to spelunk down levels of system and app UI to find the feature you want, and then they started playing with this proactive thing a few years ago where it would try to surface, like, your dinner, your dinner reservation is coming up, the traffic is bad, you should leave now and help you with those things, or you work out every morning, it'll just show you your workout app when you open your phone and now they're opening that up to apps so uh, you could just you could pick up your phone and because you ordered phil's coffee every day for the last two days it says do you want to place your usual order now or, that like, i think is much cooler you know i think that's what google did with the system that really worked in the early days was with google maps right the first time google now told me i was going to run late for an appointment yeah because traffic was worse than expected and i did not input anything that i was aware of to make that that advice happened. It blew my mind. It was a few years yeah. back. I was in Palo Alto in a coffee shop and I was going to a meeting in Mountain View and I was working on my laptop and la 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 and listening to music and all of a sudden my phone vibrates and, and I look up at the notification tray and I see a notification saying, leave now if you want to make your appointment. Traffic's bad. And I was like, what is that? And, you know, it was just like, wow, you know, like this, you, my insert graphic of my hands and my above my head exploding. Right, um, it's push interface. You didn't have to dive through any app stack to find that. It just came right to where you were. Yeah, and now it's common. It's commonplace with with Google. I mean, they pick up my flights and stuff off of my email. Speaking of which, by the way, as an aside, they messed that up recently. Not <laughs> not that I relied on it a hundred percent. But here's what happened: I got an itinerary sent from a travel agency for an upcoming trip, and then that itinerary got basically removed, and a new one got sent to me. And guess what? Google is sticking with right now the original uh, the original itinerary. So oh no. In, I cannot, you know, I can't change it because it's completely automated. I can't delete the old itinerary. I've removed the email. It's gone. But it still, you know, surfaces those dates and flight numbers and times. And it hasn't noticed yet that I have a new itinerary that has completely different, well, the dates are the same, but completely different flights at different times. So I'm going to have to, like, manually enter those in my calendar and, you know, not listen to its advice for once. This is the first time this has happened. But Google... Well, that's what your point previously, right? About complexity leading I know. to, to Google, system failure. if you're listening, get your shit together, okay? But um, it's great because like, it, it'll be your, not just your pizza order, but I, I had a movie ticket and it was just in my wallet and then my phone popped up and said, your movie's about to start. Do you want to go into do not disturb mode? And I would never have thought to do that. Well, but it's a good smart. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. No, but it's nice when it, when it works. It's... Oh man, it's so good, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's, I would say for Google, at least it works most of the time. I think it depends how much data you pump into it. For, uh, how has it been with you and your experience with Siri? 
It's been good. So the model is fundamentally different in that you don't give Apple, uh, Apple will use their existing data detector thing. So for example, if they find events or links or anything in your mail or your messages, it'll try to surface that for you if it thinks it makes sense. But mostly it's app based. So on the lock screen, for example, it could prompt you with things. But when you launch a new app, uh, and I really like this because I think this helps bridge normals into nerds. For example, if you have the Domino's app, it'll say, do you want to set up a, a, a standard pizza order? And then you can press that button and say pizza time. And from then on, anytime you say that to Siri, your standard pizza order will just, uh, will just happen. And That's you can cool. do that. The other place they're putting it is in search. So if you just swipe down to get spotlight, it'll give you a list of activities. Like it might say message Miriam to say I'm ready for the podcast. And then I don't even have to write that message. I tap the button and it goes. And it just, it stops me from having to deal with interface, which I, I, I don't want to do as someone who's used computers all my life. I can't imagine how normal people feel when they're faced with so much interface all day. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think slices and some other features, what Google's done with Android to do something similar and show that uh, at I.O. But so it's interesting to me, you touched on something that I feel we should talk about some more, and that's the um, the kind of granularity level stuff, right? To me... Yeah. Um, what I'm asking is, um, you know, as a primarily Google services user using an iPhone 10 with all the Google apps installed, not wanting to not, like, I'm, I want to use Siri. I, I don't want to not use Siri because it's so well integrated, but I end up not using it because it doesn't know anything about me. Yeah. Because I don't use, so I, I don't use a lot of uh, Apple's ecosystem in terms of cloud. So my question to you is this is, if, you know, would I have to use Apple's email client and calendar for Siri to know about my stuff? Couldn't Siri grab all this stuff from the notification tray? So the way it works, Apple has got a fundamentally different model there. It's, it's device centric. So they don't want your information on the cloud and they, they, they don't have a, a data business. So they don't need to do anything else with your data. So what they do is they use the old continuity system, NS activity, um, uh, the NS activity monitor, so which is what we used for bookmarking things, for Siri remember this, for handoff between devices. So if your app enables that, it'll just know where you are in an app and let you get back there. But it also has a new intent API. So any app can sort of tell the system what its functionality is and donate that to the system. And if the system thinks you're about to do that thing, it can then offer to do it for you. So it doesn't need to be connected to Google services. All Google has to do is add the Intense API to their apps and then okay. tell the system what sort of what sort of activities you can do in the app, and then right. the system will offer those back to you. And so they will eventually update their apps to do that. Awesome, because that that I would love to see that happening. I'm not necessarily saying that I need the Google Assistant on my my iPhone, right? But it would nice for it to integrate nicely with that entire cloud universe that I have up there from Google. Um, and and it's interesting what you said that they use uh you know the de de device centric data, which I think is absolutely awesome, uh, in the sense that it fits perfectly into Apple's you know privacy and yeah. and and security vision, which I think is is much better baked than the com the competitions. However. What happens when I'm on my Mac now? Tell me how that works, because I want that same rule to apply to my Macs, uh, you, know, you know, when I'm on my computer instead of my phone. So, so how does that translate is, over? So I think, unfortunately, the Mac is going to remain a year behind with that stuff, because what it'll, the Siri Sync system, which uses a secure version of iCloud, um, I think they call it Cloud ID now, it used to be called CloudKit. 
So it'll end-to-end -end encrypt and sync that stuff across all your devices, but they only announced it for iPhone, iPad, HomePod, and Apple Watch right now. It'll show up in the oh, okay. Siri watch face. They didn't say anything about Mac, and it leads me to believe that Mac is, is only going to start implementing it next year. Got it. So that makes sense. Okay, so it's, it's basically the cloud is tying together basically Siri's knowledge, not the general knowledge. Whereas, yeah, so for your personal stuff, it basically yeah. creates an encryption key based off your, your, your unique device keys, sends that over HTTPS to the other device that has, also has your decryption keys, and then it, it basically can sync it without any third party or any other entity knowing what it is. Right, which is completely different than the centralized model where Google yep. doesn't actually have a Google-assisted model that shares between devices. It's just your data is in their cloud and all devices go to the data, yep. and, you know, and the AI tells the device what to do. Um, yeah, I, and I mean, both are valid models. I think that uh, obviously one is less safe than the other, huh? <laughs> um, well, I mean, one, you're, you give more trust to Google because Google's, end, like, they have very different end goals. Google's end goal is to make the Star Trek computer. Right. And that's going to take a ton of time and a ton of data, and we have to all communally donate in order to help get them there, where Apple's model is very device-centric, and they want to give you a private experience, and that means that they're doing this device-to-device -device instead of building that cloud. That uh, makes sense, yeah. So, let's see, what else trying to think is there anything else that you 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 rapid the fire these stuff, things Graham, i think you would have loved the performance stuff so basically what they did is they they actually every year they have a performance team and the performance team is supposed to carry older devices to make sure the os works well on them but they're always crunched for time and there's always issues that come up so this year they actually pulled engineers including the engineers who created some of the frameworks that we use every day and they said your job is to make iOS run phenomenally well on older devices and that includes like removing things that were bound by synchronicity or things that were just commingled. They had people everything from auto layout to all the UI uh, list views and collection views. They had all those engineers sit down and say can we make this take less time? Can we make these things happen at different times? Uh, can we remove all the initial sludge from this? Can we ramp up the CPU faster so that it gives you that instant response and then slow it down instead of making you wait for the ramp up? Right. And all these things come together so that iOS just flies on older I'm looking now. forward to that for my good old iPhone 6 Plus. Yes. It's a oh, great it's so phone. You know, it's such Plus. nice hardware, yet yep. it is so goddamn slow with whatever it is now, 11.4? Is that where we're at? Yeah. I just installed that on there. It took forever. You know the biggest issue, by the way? Maybe you know the trick. There's probably a trick because you're an iOS guy. Um, my iPhone 6 Plus has one really major slowdown, which is updating apps. Interesting. It takes forever. I don't know why. Like, literally hours. So, um, I know in the old days, it used to be very careful not to use all your bandwidth, but that's a dumb idea right now. So I mean, the reason I, 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 I... My use case is a bit different. I don't use it every day, obviously. So, I turn it on and use it, you know, for a few hours at a time. And so, now it's got to sync, right? It's got to update yeah. everything. And, uh, you know, OS updates work out pretty well. I mean, they're pretty quick. It just does a download and it restarts and it does... And it should stuff. do a delta, so you're only actually moving the different yeah, bits. Yeah, but the apps, oh my god. And it seems to... They seem to fail too, like, oh, I can't install this app. You have to hit retry the little dialogue that pops. Oh, that I don't sucks. know what's going on. So I, I figured either. maybe it's just the system is super slow and it can't figure it out. I've only had issues with the app, app store on, on iOS, honestly. Um, even on my iPhone 10, it seems slow to me. It's like, I'm like... You know, I'm used to updates on Android, which are virtually instantaneous. Like, yeah. I, I don't know why Apple's updates and App Store, and, you know, universe is so slow, but... Weird. Yeah, no, they should be lightning fast with you. It's unacceptable. We'll have to talk about this.
Let's you tell you tell them, Rick. You tell them, Renee. Tell Apple, you know, go talk to um all those beautiful folks out there. You know them. Um speaking of uh beautiful interactions with Apple people, did you ever hear my interaction with Tim Cook? No. It's it's such a sad thing. Oh no. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. It, it's more funny than sad. So when I was still at Engadget, the last thing I reviewed for Engadget was the iPhone 5C and 5S. Um, and I was in, I was the, you know, I was the Apple person at Engadget, meaning, you know, you're blessed by Apple and (laughs) you know what, you know, you know this, you get taken to the special room after the keynote, right? Where you're basically interrogated by 10 people from Apple to make sure you know all the talking points before you get your review unit. So I, so so I've never had a, a, like a first seed reviews, like for an iPhone. So this is, I'm interested in hearing this. Oh, you have never done it. No, Um, that's what, no. So, you know, the keynote ends and there's the, uh, what's it called? The, uh, the demo area and you go in there and you do your thing and halfway through the demo area time that somebody comes by to you and from PR and says, Hey, it's time to, you know, it's time to go to the special room now. And you go to the special room, which is, you know, usually uh, at the old uh, inf- one infinite loop was upstairs from the, um, the, the demo bar. area and, the, and the, uh, the, the theater. And, you know, you pass through a whole bunch of rooms first. Like it clearly has, I think it's like levels of airtight security through there. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's very, you don't notice. It's not like you have guys standing with suits and little ear. Well, I'm sure there is the equivalent of that somewhere there, but you get into this room and, you know, they have the devices in a bag on a table, but before you can even touch them or see them, you have to kind of like, kind of sign your life away, but not, no, not by just signing a piece of paper, which you do have to sign an NDA thing, but it's by actually like listening to their spiel uh, and making sure that you understand and know what they want you to write about. Um, so they want the talking points to be drilled into your head before you walk out with a review in it. And instead of like a one-on-one where you're just like maybe you and the PR person and one of the execs, it's you and like a cadre of people. It, it always felt like an interrogation to me. It's very interesting. Um, but it's fun. And so bef- the last Apple event, I diverge here. We went on another tangent. But so I was waiting to get into the theater in the lobby with the crowds and Imagine my, put yourself in my shoes, right? What year was that? 2012? 13, 13, right? iPhone 5C, 5S? Yes. September 2013. So I don't have a good camera on me that can upload to the cloud instantaneously, right? I don't. Um, My iPhone's not good enough. My Android phones aren't good enough. Now, today they would be, but then they're not. And I don't have a connected DSLR that's connected well enough. Uh, it's definitely good enough as a camera. So what did I do? I brought with me a Lumia 1020. Remember wow. that phone? Yeah, I, I have one. I have the yellow one. And so that phone is what I brought. And it, it's bright yellow, right? Yep. <laughs> and I'm holding it, taking photos. And I've got it set up to upload automatically to... Um, what is it? OneDrive or something? SkyDrive back then, maybe? SkyDrive, yeah. Um, and so I do that, and it's great, right? The team is sitting there on a folder waiting for my photos to come in, and basically before the live blog starts, and posting them on social, doing cool stuff, they're happiest by the quality is good enough. It's certainly better than anything else I could have done with a phone. Worse than the DSLR, but the DSLR would yeah. have choked on its Wi-Fi connection by now. And 
as I'm holding the photo, taking a picture of the crowd, towards me walks Tim Cook and his and his cadre, right? <laughs> and guess what he does? He sees what? the yellow phone and he looks at me, pauses, you're using the wrong phone. Huh. And I didn't know what to say to that. I'm like, no, I'm not. But like, I'm, I didn't want to say that. But I'm like, like, your iPhone can't take these photos, man. I'm sorry. At least I was using a 5 at the time if I wanted to use the best iPhone. You know? Yeah. So that uh, everybody noticed. Lots of people took pictures. There's video of it. I made a complete ass of myself the first time no. I met Tim Cook. Yeah. No. Mostly because I had a yellow phone in my hand. Mine was a, a completely different story. I went to the Apple Watch launch at the Palo Alto store with Jim Dalrymple. And Tim saw Jim and came over and he said, hi, Jim. And then I introduced myself and he asked us which Apple Watch bands we used. And then he said... He loves to take, you know, he, he loves it because he doesn't have to take it off in the shower. And Apple hadn't announced it at Waterproof at the time. So I just see all the people around it going, no, no. <laughs> and we just thought he had disposable ones. Like he's Tim Cook. He has an, ice, an Apple watch dispenser. He gets out of the shower, pulls out a new one, puts it on, walks right out. Yeah. And it's synced already for him by the minions. So I have, I, I have had briefings, but they've always been sort of one PR person, one marketing person, and then me usually with a couple other See, uh, this like is, me and this sounds, or me or Gruber. This sounds right, but but if you get a review unit and that private, maybe it's just because it was my first time getting a review unit. I don't. It's a little intimidating when you have all these people. So I also like hearing their messaging because I've done stuff with like Amazon and Sony where they gave me nothing that I could use and I had to leave and go like basically research it on oh, the yeah. website yeah. afterwards. And with Apple, like yes, it's exactly their point of view, but I like that because then I feel like I can hold them accountable. To what they say, where with other companies, it's like, I have no idea what your message is. I'm just going to make one up. No, and I, I appreciate the fact that they emphasize the messaging. That was great. It's just they did it so much. I'm like, I got it, guys. It's okay. <laughs> well, like, also, yeah, you're probably a higher level. I, 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 got the, I got the talking points now. It's, it's okay. Can we move on to the device? I want to touch the device now. You're probably a higher like, I mean, I did one briefing. I don't want to name any names, but I was with a bunch of traditional journalists. And Apple had literally announced... Every single new Mac, except for the Pro and the Mini, and we were in a group briefing, and this one newspaper journalist kept saying, my readers demand to know about the Mini. I have to keep asking about it. And he wasted all of our time for like three of the five minutes just asking about the Mini while Apple kept saying, we announced every other computer. Is there any other questions you have? Seriously, they, they probably booted that guy from uh, the next The next briefing, one, I hope. Right? I mean, I, the, the, like, I think, look, I... I uh, I have no complaints about my time dealing with Apple PR, and I still have a very good relationship with the folks over there. And yes, it's a different style, and yet this this anecdote was a very different experience for me uh, as a tech journalist compared to all the other you know briefing review super yeah. important super secret review unit experiences I've ever had. But um, I give I I can only give them kudos, and I only have respect for you know. They do their thing and they do it 100% and they do it right. And they dot the I's and cross the T's. And you can't say that's wrong. You know, like, it's just a little intimidating and weird at times. That's all. Totally. And, and I like that they're consistent because, like, we deal with other companies where they, like, give us different embargo dates or completely different things about the same product because there's external and internal PR. Or there's one company they gave a week's head notice to and not another company. I know. I know. I don't even get me started on bad PR. Okay. It's, my, it's my pet peeve. Yeah. Me and, and Jonathan Hershen and a few others out there, we make fun of this stuff on Facebook. Like yeah. uh, Harry McCracken. Like, you know, uh, you've seen Harry's tweets, I'm sure. Like where he yeah, tweets totally. out like screenshots of 
bitches and stuff. And, you know, you, you, we all get those weird, like, oh my God, what the hell was that, right? But even at companies that, you know, are well-known sometimes, you're like, what were they thinking here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Apple doesn't have any of that. Apple is either, you know, overly bearing and overly cautious and overly verbose in their delivery of the the stuff but they're never you know they're at least consistently so right and they're organized and organized yeah oh yeah there's no such yeah. thing as like this region gets this embargo at a different time than this region and because you're oh yeah remember bot, that like Canada which embargo do you pick now okay samsung just gave phones to canadians with no embargo or the t-mobile units shipped before the embargo lifted yeah oh my god one time samsung i was at engage and samsung got mad at us because we published a review of a tablet and we're like what and they're like it's not out yet you signed a you signed a, an ndn and you signed a uh, uh and you agreed to an embargo on this we're like yes but then you gave us another ndn embargo in europe and you gave us the device in europe so when that embargo lifted we published the review of the device it just happens to be the same device without the yep. carrier stuff and what are we supposed to do like you know, we tried to reach out to you and clarify, but you didn't get back to us. Yeah. So give us a global embargo next time. They have, Samsung has never screwed that up ever again after that. Yeah, no. It's true. Oh, I remember my favorite Engadget moment was when the two HTC streams in different cities, one of them was Bork, so they just started handing out phones to the audience and the Engadget people covering it just started live blogging the phone. Yeah, why not? I mean, what are you going to do <laughs> at that point, right? It's like... Uh, anyway, uh, so memories. I want to touch on the thing we talked about pre-podcast yes. a little bit. So, look, WWDC, good news, right? Overall, yep. uh, lots of improvements next year to look forward to. Yeah. iOS 10, uh, sorry, 12 is going to be faster, yes. right? Yes. Am, am I going to be happy? Yeah, I think you're going to be really okay. happy. I mean, I think you'll be happier at the next event because Apple tends to time the photography stuff with the hardware, not the software. Right. But even the software got like much better segmentation masking, for example. And so macOS, the new version, what's it called again? Mojave. Mojave. So yeah. it's going to be cool too, right? Dark I'm going to like I it. Mean, dark, dark mode, mode is, is dark right? mode is all out, right? Like that's yeah. definitely, I can't wait for that. That's awesome. Yeah. So other than dark mode, anything standing out? Uh, for macOS, I mean the new app store, but the biggest thing is, uh, you know, with that, that code name Marzipan stuff, which is basically for a long time, app has had AppKit. That goes back to the next days. And then when they made the iPhone, they didn't want to just use AppKit. They wanted to make something new. So they made UIKit. Right. And now there are millions of UIKit apps, but there are not that many AppKit apps, especially when you have a big new Mac app store. And Apple also did an internal reorganization. Previously, they had like an iMessage for iOS team and an iMessage for Mac team. And now there's one iMessage team with different in interface groups, but the core engineering is the same. And they started Makes running sense. into this problem of we have to, the, the app started falling behind because they'd have to write the iOS version and the AppKit version. So now they're bringing part of, I, of uh, UIKit to the Mac. You can still write AppKit apps, but you'll also be able to write UIKit apps that then tap into the Mac-specific interface frameworks. And that is leading us in a beautiful segue to the next awesome. part of our conversation. Thank you, Renee. Um, okay, so this is great. I'm all for it. I actually think that as a Chromebook user, especially the Pixelbook um, that runs, that can run Android apps, sometimes having a tiny little applet in a window, um, essentially like a digested version of a full screen desktop experience, yeah. 
in a tiny little window that's sitting there in the corner doing its thing and that you can interact with is awesome. And obviously that's what they're bringing to the Mac, which I think is great. I'm not sure I'd rely that on that as a main like as a main experience, you know, like a full full screen app, uh, because I don't think that would scale very well to a 27 inch iMac. Uh, but I like the idea. I'm on board. But here's my big question to you: Is how the hell do you use this with a mouse and keyboard? So I mean, it, it's similar, but it's also really different to Android's approach. And that Apple's not just bringing iPhone apps, for example. Like, like they're not just running in a little simulator or window. These become full on Mac apps. The, right, even now, you can resize the windows. I get have that, a little. Yeah corner buttons uh, and if they're iPad versions they already have all the auto layout stuff to make them work in a full screen mode some of them might be sparse on, a, on an iMac that's screen, what I'm saying but the sparseness yeah yeah but if, if, if your collection view is full it'll just keep filling out that collection view so you, you you may not notice but I think the big thing is there are a bunch of iOS developers that have just never I'm going to say never bothered to make app versions and it's not that they don't want to it's just they have a list of so many things to do and it's a lot of work to build like they can share data models back and forth but it's a lot of work to share engineering back and forth. And that's why like Paul Haddad famously does not like AppKit. So he hired Todd Thomas to make the AppKit version of TweetBot for the Mac. Whereas the Icon Factory, they maintain a separate version of Tweetbot, of Twitterific for the Mac and for iOS. And there's people like Greg, uh, Greg Pierce, who makes drafts, who's like always wanted a Mac app, but just he, he's a one person shop. He doesn't have the time to make a completely different app. And with this, he, he probably doesn't have to. We saw people at WWDC who were bringing over not perfect, but functional versions of their app in half a day. And that's awesome. And I totally understand that the difference between, you know, emulating Android inside of Chrome OS and actually yeah. running native Mac apps. Well, iOS like apps or iOS written apps from on the Mac. What I'm asking is the interface. This is my biggest gripe right now is how the hell do you, I mean, the first thing Dieter said this in his video, the first thing you want to do to these apps is touch the screen. Yeah. I mean, I, I use an, I go back and forth between an iPad and a Mac all the time. And when on the iPad, I hate that I sometimes have to take my hands off the keyboard to tap the screen because if the keyboard was just capacitive, I could, I could swipe on it when I needed to and then go back to typing. And on the Mac, it, it, because I've used a Mac so long and I've been using computers for so long, I don't normally think about touching the screen, but there are some interfaces that make you think like that is the logical thing to do. And then you tap it and it seems broken. And for kids these days who grew up being touch native, not like touch immigrant like we are, they just think screens are broken if they don't work. And I think and the, this, that is my point. <laughs> you just nailed I know, it. It's totally valid. And I think that like Apple will say it's not ergonomic, but I think the real thing they're saying is that um, look how long it took Microsoft to make Windows really touch sensitive. And it took, they had to go all the way from Windows 7 through Windows 8 to Windows 10. And Apple could do that. They could take engineers and they could say, this is your job and you've got to build out Mac to be touch first. But unlike Windows, they have this whole touch system. They have, I, they have iPhone and iPad. And to them, it's like sacrificing resources that could make iPad better in order to retrofit things onto Mac, which is sort of the past. And I think they're, yeah. they're probably thinking that those resources could be better spent making the future, making something that is that ARM-based MacBook that has sort of the, I don't know if it's a hybrid, I don't know if it's a whole new system, but it, this, whatever comes next, because they're not going to just buy next again and do a whole, they're going to have to modularly build out their next generation computer. And I think they're more focused on that than they are on, on the Mac. So all valid points, but I have a counterpoint to you, which yes. is you should spend that money investing into making macOS touch-friendly. And I, again, I don't think it's the same as what you're suggesting. I don't want it to be 
a touch first experience. I want it to be a touch second experience, like Chrome OS, like Windows 10. I don't think people use Windows 10 as a touch first experience. They use Windows 10 in a very classic desktop-like environment with double quotes here, desktop-like or whatever, desktop first. That's what Macs and Chrome OS and Windows 10 are all about. You should be able to use them perfectly with a mouse and keyboard or trackpad and keyboard, whether that keyboard be an actual keyboard or virtual keyboard. And that's how it should be. And then on top of that, oh, it should happen to have touch support for those devices that have it. And I think for Apple, I would see them switch all their devices to touch just for consistency. Um, but it wouldn't be the main way you interact with it. It would just be that when you run one of those UI kit apps that's been recompiled on the Mac, it would just support it and would be a better experience if you feel like using it that way. And you don't have to. In the same way as right now, you have to move your hands away from the keyboard to touch the stupid touch bar, yeah. which I want to talk to you about in a minute because that's, that makes the whole touch bar, like the whole touch bar thing is, is a broken idea and it's wrong and it's bad and it's terrible. And I really think they should just invest their time and effort into, as you said, making our Macs, but also making touch as a second experience for a Mac OS and call it a day. And the reason this matters, and this is, this is the deal breaker here, is that the future of mobile computing is a laptop where the physical keyboard and the physical trackpad are gone and replaced with another screen. And it's basically two tablets attached with a hinge that can rotate 360 degrees or whatever, the 280, whatever number of degrees that would be. And that you don't have to worry which way is up, you just put it down on your lap because it's still a freaking laptop and you type and you use the trackpad, quote unquote, and it's completely virtual, like what iPhone brought us in 2007. We have never looked back. We do not type on hardware keyboards on our phones anymore. That's no, why I... they need to invest in all this, because if they don't do it now, when Microsoft and Asus and uh, Qualcomm and whoever it is does it next, they're going to be effed, okay? No, I totally agree with you. I did an article last year where I said, like, just make Mac a bit touch. Like, just take all the gestures from the trackpad, put those on the screen, and let me swipe and tap. And I don't need fine grain UI control. I just need the gross gestures that let me navigate and 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 action uh, a basic interface stuff. So you know, a pinch to zoom and tap and two finger swipe and all that. Let me do it on the screen as well as the trackpad. And I know some people don't like that idea because they think it's confusing because some type actions will work and others don't. But I also agree with you that's the future. And that, that's the rumor when, when the touchpad, sorry, the, the touch bar came out that there was a bunch of Apple patents that describe exactly what you're talking about. A computer with two screens. And there was this brilliant patent from 20 years ago. I forget the woman's name, but she created this thing called Texture. And it's what Victor Webb and all the designers at Apple used to implement uh, 3D touch and forced press. The idea of making virtualized physical surfaces and they could be gritty and they could be smooth and they could be bumpy. Uh, and it looks like that's what Apple is working towards where you have a surface on the screen, but they can create any control they want and actually give you the fake. Cause our fingers in physics are a giant lie. Oh, they can yeah. just create different vibrational frequencies and you'll feel like a keyboard one minute and then two DJ tables the next minute. Um, I know. And I think, and right. Apple's the only one who does it right so far in terms of haptic feedback. Haptic on the Mac is insanely good on the trackpad. Yes. I feel like I'm clicking a trackpad even though every you know it's a time. lie. <laughs> even though it's, it's a complete lie and when Mac is turned off, it's the lie comes out and I'm like yeah. I touch it and I'm like this this I cannot believe this is 
this is so good. Like the, or the scroll wheel on iOS when you're scrolling between dates and things. Oh it, my it God, feels yes. like ticking. Yeah. And so that's my point is like, so look, I'm not saying like, I want to rewind a bit for the listeners who are like in up in arms right now that I'm suggesting a laptop without physical keyboard and physical trackpad. But the reality is this, some people are always going to prefer the physical trackpad yeah. and keyboard and manufacturers are going to oblige. Okay. Don't worry about it. Right. It's like the same way as you can buy a 13 inch MacBook Pro without a touch bar. Or with you can buy a phone or a BlackBerry with or without with, a with the last With a little asterisk next to that last statement, because I, you know, as an aside, and I'm going to take that tangent right now, I wish Touch Bar A didn't exist, but if it does have to exist, this is what I think Apple screwed up with it, really. Like, I don't like it, that's my personal taste. I'm not saying that, some people do, so I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad idea originally. I think it's terrible because I don't like it, but it's not necessarily terrible for everyone else. But here's what Apple should have done. It should have, ha- it should have had haptic feedback yes. from day one. They had the stupid thing in the stupid trackpad already. Yeah. Number one. Number two, the escape key, the virtual escape key, should either be a physical key on that row to kind of mirror the fact that there's a touch ID sensor on the yes. other end. Or it should be placed physically on the touch screen in the exact spot it should be and have haptic feedback. I agree with both those things. At least that as a bare minimum, that's my expectation. And maybe the next generation MacBook will finally do that. But here is the kicker. Why not make it like you did back in the day, Apple, with the glossy versus matte screen, where you ordered whatever MacBook you want and you add the touch bar for 500 bucks. That's probably high. You add the touch bar for 299. That's probably too high. 199, whatever it is. Right? Like, why not make that an option and I can still have a MacBook with a physical function key row? Yeah, I mean, the logic is typically, I mean, you worked in products, so you don't, like, you'll appreciate this logic, is that we want to put Touch ID on the Mac. It has to be secure. Therefore, we have to have an ARM chip. That ARM chip has to have a display that no one can hijack or display a different amount and charge you these things. Therefore, it has to be controlled by the chip and the Touch ID sensor. So we have to put a tiny display in the keyboard. We're putting a tiny display in the keyboard, we might as well stretch it out and give some area to show the shortcuts that nobody ever remembers how they work on a Mac. Yeah, and the idea was sound until they decide not to put haptics yeah, and agreed. make the escape key uh, a non-hardware key. Agreed. That's it. And I, as I said, the secondary requirement is make it optional. Yeah. Um, right now, if I were to buy a Mac laptop from scratch, if I lost all my equipment for whatever reason, I have a 27-inch Mac, uh, iMac and I have a MacBook 12-inch, or first-gen 12-inch, by the way. Ugh, painful. Um, I would probably buy a MacBook 13-inch Pro, right? Because it's faster than the MacBook 12, almost as portable. And if I couldn't afford the the, the, the iMac, like both buying two computers, that would be the good compromise. The problem with that is that I only get two Thunderbolt 3 ports. Yes. And that's that's, that's exactly my problem. It's like, like I don't really need the higher-end specs of the MacBook Pro so much, but I do need the ports, guys. So... Why don't you make it optional so I can spec it any way I want? You already do yeah. BTO and you already have a million SKUs anyway. Yes, totally. Ugh. No. Rant no, over. Anyway, so the touch bar is an intermediate step. And Asus launched a ZenBook Pro at Computex last week with a trackpad that's a display. And technically, it's very cool um, in the sense that the display is really high res, high quality. It's glass. It's, it feels like a trackpad when you touch it. It clicks like a trackpad when you click on it. It's physical click. It's not haptic. It looks great in various slight and various viewing angles. So it's definitely, technically, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, 
And here are the three modes of operation. One is screen off, just displaying uh, either nothing or a photo or like some some you know gradient or something that you'd customize. Um, and it's just a regular trackpad in every way with all the gestures and stuff. Um, two, it turns into a little uh, turns into a basically a little iPhone or uh, Android device or whatever you want to call it, a little mobile device down there with a little touch interface and um, little applets, calculator, uh, phone dialer, uh, weather widget, uh, play controls for your favorite yeah. you know music app, whatever. And then there's a third mode where it becomes a second screen for Windows. So you can drag a window into it. Um, and all of this is cool, but from a user experience point of view, wah, 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 right? <laughs> it's, it's totally not thought through very well. Um, but here's the thing. That doesn't mean it can change. Yeah. I think applying some AI and some proximity sensing and contextual, like what's on the main screen, you could theoretically make this thing baked so that it is displayed your is displaying your music controls, but if you are the way depending on how you touch the touch trackpad and how you interact with it, it it does still work as a trackpad, and then maybe it knows when you're not when you're trying to peck at it, and then it turns into the controls for the music at that point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So I'd like to see how they develop it, but basically it's the answer to Touch Bar. So it's funny. There was this, I, I just remember, there was this really cool demo. Uh, they have these different meetups at WWDC, and I always go to the accessibility one because it's just, it's always so cool every year. And they had this young Italian developer who made this app called Viso. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, so instead of buying like this this expensive switch controller, you put your iPhone 10 with the true depth camera at behind your Mac, and it reads your head movements and translates that into cursor movements, and then it translates your mouth movements into clicks. And you can navigate the entire Mac OS interface just with the true depth camera. Yeah, and so see, this is this kind of well, AI is probably a bit overblown calling it that, but basically, some smarts that are contextual and understand how you're yeah. trying to use the trackpad would make it more usable. And I could see this being a viable thing. And then but when Apple again, bakes true depth into a Mac, you'll just be able to do that as part of the OS. Right. And for a long time, I thought it'd be cool to have an iPhone that you could dock into your Mac, and it would be the trackpad for your Mac. Yeah. Um, but again, the the you know the use user experience needs to be super polished, and I know that Apple spends a lot of time and energy on making that a real thing for everyone and kudos to them because they show the way for the rest of the industry so i wouldn't expect them to do to adopt this kind of asus madness although i kudos to asus for doing it um but it brings us to all of this touch touchpad and this trackpad with a screen are stepping stones to what i think what the real thing is which we just touched on earlier uh touched on funny Uh uh it's a, a laptop where instead of, you know, you can order it with a keyboard and trackpad and it's physical and you're, you're like old school, like, you know, or you can say, screw it. I want two basic touch surfaces. I don't want to know which way is up. I want it to have cameras and depth sensors and um, infrared heat sensors that know where my hands are, where my face is, what I'm looking at and automatically like basically gives me a trackpad and a, and a, and a, and a keyboard if on glass with great haptic feedback and even positions the keyboard automatically based on where my hands are on the on the on the surface uh so that i can use traditional desktop class desktop like desktop first computing and hey dock it on an old style keyboard if you really want to exactly and then you know if uh i start looking down at the surface and you know maybe uh, interacting beyond the the keyboard trackpad paradigm maybe not resting my hands on the 
quote-unquote palm rests, uh, it starts turns into a second screen uh, and shows more information there. Or like mixing and, your palette for your Photoshop painting that's on the main screen. Right. And I can configure it to be, you know, a digitizer with a with some sort of uh, high, uh, you know, low latency pen, yep. or I can flip it into a, a, a tablet where you don't have to remember which where where which side the screen is on. I just pick it up and there it is. And it, and all these, I think that's the future, and I think that's we're going to converge to that in parallel with having very skinny, flexible, transparent phones, you know? I yeah. mean, maybe not transparent because I don't think that's a good idea in the long run. <laughs> but my point is, you know, f- definitely flexible, super thin phones are, are going to happen. Flexible, at least with at least a flexible joint. Um, so, so I think that's the, that's the future. I see that. And eventually maybe flexible joint on that, on that configuration on a laptop format too. Um, that's where we're going, I feel, after, you know, a few years at Computex, I feel that the technology is developing to the point where we're very close now. It's going to take two or three years for us. So, ASUS is launching a, something with this technology next year. Um, Yoga Book 2 from Lenovo has been announced. Uh, and uh, Intel showed a prototype of a device that had one screen was e-ink, the other screen was regular. And yeah. the e-ink part could be a digitizer or a trackpad or a keyboard or all of the above with haptics. So it's coming. It's coming for sure. And it's going to take two or three years for them to sort it out so that it's reliable, good, solid experience. But I wish if I wish Apple was also in that in that game because when Apple does it, it'll be great, right? Not I mean, just I think they are. Good like we've seen we've seen patents for the two display um, computer. We've seen patents for e-ink keys that can be arranged. I just think Apple doesn't. Sometimes, but most of the time they don't beta in public. So, like, they probably no, have all course. these crazy computers in their lab and they're just wait instead of putting them out there and seeing how people use them, they're just trying to make sure they're as good as possible internally before they release them. So, so what do you think that takes us, you know, in terms of like, what can we expect? Do you think what you put your prediction hat on because you know more than Apple about Apple than anyone else? <laughs> what, what do you think as a Mac user, my expectations should be in terms of product lineup for the next year or two? I think this year is just going to be about getting the current stuff onto uh, Coffee Lake. I think next year is going to be more interesting because we'll see the modular Mac Pro, which is going to be the, yeah, the that's next gonna be big awesome. design mm-hmm. iteration that Apple's putting together. Uh, and we might see the ARM, uh, the, sorry, the Intel AMD hybrid Macs, which will be super interesting. Okay. I think it's the year after that that Apple's going to get creative again with the MacBooks because they will have gotten all the the pro refreshes out of the way. And I don't mean out of the way. They're super important to pros. They're not important. They're not like, they're not the mainstream computers. They're not the ones that sell in the hundreds of millions, but they're super important to a very important demographic. So they'll get, I mean, that's the, where the Mac core audience lives, right? Totally. And it, that's the tension is that a, a, after the iPhone, Apple became more of a mainstream company and the stuff they're pushing out now sells better than the stuff they've ever pushed out before. But it makes people like us who are the traditional Mac customers go, no, you're totally ignoring us for that hot little number over there with with the the USB-C ports. Right. So the the the, des- the desktop experience I have no worries about. What I'm more yeah. concerned about is where are we going to go with our MacBooks and MacBook Pros because you 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 just touched on Intel AMD, you touched on, you know, streamlining some of the 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 new chipsets and stuff. But, you know, do you think the next gen touchpad is coming in the next 6 months to a year and has haptic uh not the touchpad, sorry, uh touch bar do you think they're going to fix some of the the concerns we've had about the escape key and stuff like that do you think we're going to see a 12 inch macbook that's a little more powerful for a relatively similar form factor and price without sacrificing battery life 
Yeah, I think that there's a couple interesting things there. One is I would have assumed that Apple would have, if they were, if Apple was really confident with Touch Bar, I would have assumed that we'd see it progress now. We'd see it in the 12-inch MacBook. We'd see it in a Apple Magic Keyboard that you could put on your iMac uh, or your Mac Mini, and we haven't. So I don't know if that's delayed or if they're reconsidering the whole idea. Um, but I, so I think that is sort of in stasis until then we see whatever the next refresh is. But I think we're heading towards that ARM MacBook. And I think everything we've seen up till now, where a- APFS, the new Apple file system, runs across the entire product line. They've rebuilt the windowing manager, the launch manager. They've now they're doing the, the Marzipan apps where they're blurring the line between AppKit and UIKit. And I think all of that, these are, they have a huge legacy system base, but they're slowly swapping those out for highly modernized components. And I think that's the foundation they need to sort of launch that ARM MacBook and start doing these next generation Macs that we're waiting for. And what do you think the pros are going to be able to get from the MacBook line in the next year or two? Because they're, I mean, honestly, hopefully they got over the USB-C stuff, which I think is the way to go. I live in a USB-C world and I would never want to look back. My biggest gripe right now is that Apple still uses lightning on the phones because I think USB-C, with all of its flaws and issues, is still amazing. It's an amazing world when everything you own is USB-C and most of it works together um, so what I want to know is more like, um, 32 gigs of RAM, that kind of stuff. Like, are we going to see that soon? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the part where they would have done 32 gigabytes of RAM previously if they had the low level, the, the low power, uh, DDR4 to use. It just didn't exist back then. And I was, I, I would have said that, you know, make, make a big version, like you have the tiny version on the bottom, make a big version that's much more power hungry, that uses desktop parts that people can plug in. And not have to worry about. But Apple seems adamant and going, no, we're going to wait until this. Like Again, a lot of it, and it sounds like I'm pushing this on Intel, but a lot of this is Intel's fault. We would have DisplayPort 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. We'd have uh, much better RAM support at the low power levels. We'd have all of these things in computers already, but they're delayed year after year after year. And at a certain point, Apple either has to suck it up and make less power efficient MacBooks and just live with it because that's what pros want. Or you know, we they have to move to a platform that they control and can start doing these things without having to depend on anybody. Uh, 32 gigs is probably a fringe case because most people were really upset about it at the beginning, but with the new but RAM management system, <laughs> with the new yeah. management system, because they, they do so much to compress RAM now that I don't think many people noticed in practicality. Uh, yeah, but it's no, still something I, you want to see. It's not a big concern for me. I'm just, it seems like the pros are asking for it often. Um, and eGPU, I mean, that, there was so much pushback. And now I was talking to the Cinema 4D people and they're like, we're throwing as many of these things we can on it and it's scaling linearly and we don't think we can stop. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, I think it's going to be interesting. I, I mean, right now, I personally, if I had to buy a new Mac portable, I, w- I probably would buy a 13-inch MacBook with no touch bar as an interim, basically. Yeah. Uh, because I need more power than the MacBook 12-inch and I need almost the same portability, but I feel like I can't live without um, a function row, especially as an ex-developer, you know? Um, I mean, you know, as an aside for all of you listening, and Renee, you're going to laugh at this, but I'm one of those people, one of those people that has it set up so that I have to use the function key on my keyboard, on my Macs, to activate all these shortcuts for volume and stuff. Yeah. Because I still live in a world where, to me, the function keys are the default function keys. So when I'm in Firefox and I hit F3, I get the search box. Yeah. 
See, that's how I live the world because I'm old and cranky and crotchety no, now. No, I mean, Get off my lawn, kids. I, I, I wasn't, I, I, so I never really used the function key. I used them as media controls and brightness controls and things because they were there. But I, I don't think either are a good solution. Like, I think the function key role, just less and less people used it. And I think the touch bar is sort of uncertain how people use it. I know I like it just because I switch, when I, whenever I have to look at a new app or an app I haven't used in a while, I, I don't remember what the, right, what the yeah, keyboard yeah. shortcuts are. And like, I'm recording this in QuickTime now. And Previously, if I did a screen recording, I could never remember what key stopped that. I press escape, I press all this stuff. Now there's just a stop button right on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, I get that. I mean, there are some, like, I'm not saying that the idea behind the touch bar is wrong. I think it's the implementation. Yeah. Um, Again, primarily because the, the you can absolutely replace the function keys with um, virtual function keys. I don't think they get used enough, even for developers that use them a lot. If you had haptic feedback, that would be perfectly fine. Yes. It's, not, it's not like you type the key more than a few times an hour because like F5 for compile and Visual Studio, uh, I mean, Control F5, can compile and run, all those are used a lot, but I mean... You know, it's not going to be a big big deal if you don't get, you know, like a physical key there, as long as you get yeah. haptic feedback. So, but escape, no, you, you damn yeah. give me back my escape key. Duh. I, I use like escape that. so much. I don't understand how people don't use escape. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it, you just get used to using it. Like for me, like uh, w with the touch bar, I can scan through the tab. If I have like 30 tabs open on Safari, I just touch the tab, the touch bar, and I move my finger and I flip through all of them to find the one I want. I've never found ah. a faster way, but there's no haptics. So like you don't know exactly where to stop. And it, I even yeah. feel like even if it didn't help me subconsciously, it would help me know, I would just feel better about doing it. Yeah, it would. It would be cool. So, um... Yeah, so to me, that's kind of where I'm at with that. And uh, I, I want to quickly touch, pick your brain about thing, and then we yeah. have one news item and we're done. Um, AirPlay 2, how is yeah. it? Have you tried it? Is it good? Do you have two t uh, AirPods connected together in stereo? Does it sound good? Yeah, no, it sounds great. I mean, they did, so I just for the, to test it out, I got two HomePods and I stole a friend of mine's HomePod and I put one in my bedroom and two in my living room and I made a stereo pair in my living room and it works great. Like uh, it takes the HomePod and it just, makes it that much richer because you're now oh, yeah. dedicating oh, yeah. one to each side and they're doing the same thing but they created this peer-to-peer -peer network where you you now all the speakers and all the microphones work together and it'll for example make the same bass level between the two so it stays consistent and it'll both ne it'll negate each of them and then measure the d reverb and the the echo the echo cancellation and it'll send the ambient left and right channels bouncing off the walls separately. And it, it just makes such a big soundstage comparatively. Bad. No, I, I can't wait to try it. For me, that was a big, I mean, I'm I obviously, you know, I'm not the right customer for that because I don't have enough invested in Siri and I don't use uh, uh, Apple Music. So um, better integration with third-party services and, uh, you know, AirPlay 2 were the two kind of big things that would me that would make me want to try the air the AirPod, and I think I'm still waiting for better. I want Google Play Music integration natively through Siri. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm sure it's going to happen. Basic, so like, yeah. So the one thing that we didn't get WWC that I really wanted was uh, a media domain for uh, Siri Kit, but you did get the shortcut. So, for example, now you could say if Google surfaces it, you could say play my playlist or play this, and anything you've set up, it should just kick off. The thing that I was really impressed with was the home, the, the whole room audio, because I've had that with Sonos for a while, but when you're using native iOS controls and voice, you can just say, you know, move this to the living room, bring this music here, play this in every room, play this in every room, but the bathroom. Um, nice. And it's, it's perfectly in sync. And you can hear, because when you make one room louder, another room softer, there's no difference in when the music's being played. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so the reason I brought this news item and put it, it's not super important. I could have talked about it next week, for example. But, you know, the iPhone 10 yeah. almost gave us a full screen phone. Almost. Yeah. The notch is there for better or for worse. It's there mostly because of the incredibly advanced 3D face scanner connect like yeah. integration in there. And nobody's done it as good as Apple so far. And, and certainly nobody's done it secured where you can use it for payment. Uh, in the Android world yet, we're all waiting for a baited, with a bated breath, who's going to be first, whether it's going to be Samsung, Huawei, or somebody else to come out with an Android phone that has, or probably Google with a Pixel 3, yeah. has an Android phone with a total, perfectly accurate, you know, 3D scanning face recognition system in the front. But until until that happens, what we're getting today is a phone from Vivo called the Nex, which has been rumored for a while. We've seen prototypes in the wild for a while where it's finally the all-screen phone. The, the first, it probably won't be a great implementation. It's China only. You know, I don't think they'll make a version that even runs Google Play services. So this is more like a first draft at this. This phone has a full screen, as far as we know. Imagine an iPhone 10 without the notch. That's basically what it'll look like. So how does it do the camera? Well... This is kind of crazy, and I love Android for being crazy with form factors. There's a camera that slides out from the side of the phone to face you to take selfies and retracts when you're done. Yeah. How cool is that? That's like completely over the top. Like Apple would never do something like this ridiculous. But at the same time, Android, Android world is crazy, and they're yeah. going to do that. And I, I thought it. it was cool. So... Yeah. um. I'll try to get my hands on one. I don't really have great relationships with the folks at Vivo, but I have my ways. So I'll yes, see if I can do. get, because this is going to be a cool one to play with. And hopefully I can get one that maybe sells in Hong Kong or Taiwan or something that has Google Play services on it. Um, but what is your thoughts on that? I mean, it's clearly a stepping stone, but do you, you know, are you, in, are you excited about the prospect of maybe an iPhone someday not having anything in the front? Um, and obviously, you know, how would Apple do the Face ID stuff then, right? Through the, I think through yeah. the display would be the only way. Yeah, I mean, they have a, Apple, Apple, like any company, files patents for everything. But I think they had a patent where there were alternate rows of pixels that would display and that would, that would ingest um, light so that they could do things like, like not even below the screen, but in the screen um, sort of sensing. And all that stuff is, I mean, eventually, you know, like my, my view of the future is that we're going to have a little mother box or a little marble that's going to do local auth and cloud connection. And then it'll just opportunistically take over any piece of glass of any size yeah, or any absolutely. AR surface that it can to give us a display. That is and everything totally, else is getting towards that. That is totally the, the, the future we're going to. And my vision of it as well. But I think, you know, it's going to be a while before that yes. happens. And also, you know, then you have to worry about where do you put the pebble and in which pocket? Did you lose it? Did well, you you'll have behind? a badass holster, won't you? Oh, of course you would. Yeah. <laughs> no. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. not me or you. We would figure it out. But where does the average... I mean, think of the other... You know, think of the average soccer mom with an iPhone today, right? Yeah. Probably throw it in their little bag with everything else. It'll be right? like but, Wakanda. There'll be little beaded bracelets. Oh, my God. Such hippie you are. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Cool. Well, listen, I think we're good. Uh, awesome. I want you to tell the world where they can find you and get all your awesome content, which, by the way, folks, if you're not following Renee in all of his awesome ways he's going to share in a second, you should, okay? Oh, thank you. 
so you can find me uh, on Twitter at Rene Ritchie or imore.com slash vector. Uh, that's the name of my column. It's the name of my podcast on iTunes or, you know, your favorite surface service, uh, Killing Pocket Cast, uh, and youtube.com slash vector show. That's the video version. Awesome. So go check that out, folks. And then the other thing is uh, our sponsor, audible.com. Uh, are you, uh, do you use Audible by any chance? I love it. I used to commute an hour to work every time and I would not have my sanity if it wasn't for Audible. There you go. You've, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Uh, so as you know, Audible is a sponsor. What it means is that if you click on the link in the show notes, which I will also share verbally with you here in a second, you support the podcast. It's not going to give you much of a discount or anything, but if you aren't with Audible yet and you love listening to books because for some reason you can't read them or you prefer to listen to them or you're on a flight for 12 hours like I was two days ago or you are uh, in the commute every day in your car and you can't take, you know, take your eyes off the road yet because you don't have autonomous driving audible.com go, go check it out um if you click on the link you'll support us so um the link is audibletrial.com slash mobile tech that's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech thanks for your support audible and you guys know where to find me i'm at tankerl on twitter that's t-n-k-g-r-l like the comic comic book character without the vowels that's also my Instagram handle. You will find me on YouTube as uh, youtube.com slash Miriam my full name spelt out, Miriam with a Y. And all of this content that I post, Instagram has pretty photos. YouTube has cool unboxing videos and review videos and hands-ons and interviews and things that I find in my travels and my trade show attendance. All that stuff is as a little gift for you guys who listen to the podcast. You folks love the podcast. And so if you want additional content, that's where it is. Remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel, like the videos, all that. And more importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends. MobileTechPodcast.com is the URL. We're on Pocket Casts, Overcast iTunes even, those Apple folks who are listening to this show, we do not hate Apple on this show, okay? <laughs> I might be cranky about Apple from time to time, but we don't hate Apple on this show. Uh, Renee, thanks for being on. That was um, so awesome. Thanks for having me on. I'll talk to you anytime. Awesome. We'll have you back on sometime. Maybe uh, well, after all the goodies that Apple's going to announce Ooh. in September. Yeah. It's a date. We can, we can convene. It's a date. Yes. Super. Thanks for being on, and stay tuned for another show next week, folks. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.